the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 631 for Sunday, November 13th, 2016. On November 13th, Felix Unger was asked to remove himself from his place of residence. That request came from his wife. Deep down, he knew she was right, but he... Folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We share it all. We answer your questions with the goal being that we all learn at least four new things each and every time we get together here. Sponsors for this episode include Videoblocks at Videoblocks.com slash MGG. Yes, that's a new URL, an easier one for you to remember. We'll talk more about Videoblocks shortly here in the show. Harry's at harrys.com where MGG coupon code gets you a free post shave balm with your free trial kit and Eero at Eero.com slash MGG. I can't believe it folks, but Eero has given us permission to tell you about their upcoming black Friday deals. And so we will do that in, uh, in a few minutes here, here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here, in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Greetings, John F. Braun. How you doing? Good. 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 All right. So um, we had last week, we talked a little bit about this, but uh, listener Frank wrote in and he said, uh, I'm, I'm a longtime Windows user, uh, but since the rest of my tech is all Apple, I just purchased a new 15-inch MacBook Pro. I was wondering if you could include in the show what your top 10 apps are that everyone needs on their Mac. So instead of it just being my list and John's list, we solicited lists from you. So we're going to read through a lot of these, not necessarily all of them, but, uh, but I think we have a, uh, a place where we can, we can really get this done. All right. So we're going to start with Bruce. Uh, and that's just cause we're, that's where we're going to start. So we're going to list everybody's, but we're not going to double up on anything. Hopefully if, uh, if I'm smart enough to figure out how to do that. So, Bruce says, as a Mac consultant, these are my must-have non-Apple apps that I use daily. Skype, Join.me, Easy Find, Firefox, Google Chrome, Slack, and Text Wrangler. That's what Bruce says. Andy says, I term two because working on switches, Linux routers, uh, Linux servers and routers, he's using SSH. Tmux and SCP all of the time. VMware Fusion Pro, Airmail, Tweetbot, Spotify, Bartender, iStat Menus, Poofy adds to those, Evernote, Todoist, 1Password, Transmit for FTP, and iMazing. And then he goes on to add Little Snitch, Handbrake, VLC, and Transmission to that list. We're going to talk about some of these, but I just want to get the list out here. Daryl adds one password. I don't think that's been said, but maybe it has Dropbox backblaze clam XAV. We're going to talk a little bit about antivirus software in the episode later here. Onyx Mike adds 
I don't think it's been said. Keyboard maestro, BB Edit, which of course is Text Wrangler's older cousin. Um, and then, uh, where are we here? Todd adds to these Divi to resize windows all the time. That's not one that I was aware of, but looks very good. He says he uses that because he has his MacBook Pro that he plugs into different size monitors at home and at work and uh, likes to rearrange things. Alfred Evernote. Uh, after Todd, we have Don and Don adds a text one that uh, I've not, I don't think we've mentioned on the show before. Clarify Microsoft's one note. I think we already said Slack Pixelmator and Walter, which uh, is a very cool video transfer tool that lets you get videos from your uh, Mac to your iOS device without needing to convert. Lewis adds launch bar to that. An oldie, but a goodie. Hazel, which I don't think we've mentioned yet. Better touch tool and Plex server. And Gary adds jump cut, carbon copy cloner, time machine editor to it. John, you want, uh, you want to go first or should I, I, I think, do I have anything to add? I don't think I do. Oh yeah. I have one to add to that list. Okay. <clears throat> I have default I folder to add to that list. So you get to, you get ah. to back clean up. All right. Well, I will. Uh, that was on my list as well. Okay. Or default folder ten. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the latest version of all of these is is to be assumed. Yep. Uh, so the ones that I have here that uh, were not mentioned, as far as I know, um, LastPass, which is uh, yeah, competitor to uh, uh, I I I'm just a LastPass guy. I think you're a one password guy. But, I am. Uh, yep. Any sort of password manager is essential to me. Uh, fruit juice, uh, to me is an all-in-one tool to oh, yeah. just take care of your battery. So yeah. for any machine that runs on battery, fruit juice, uh, I love, uh, to make sure cruft doesn't build up. I like app cleaner. Okay. It helps you throw away apps and get rid of, gets rid of all the, uh, ancillary files. Is that, is that the right way to yeah. do that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Hardware Growler is a wonderful diagnostic tool that will show you when all sorts of things uh, your Mac connects to and disconnects from all sorts of things, uh, including peripherals and disks and things like that. An oldie but a goodie, but one that I like, uh, Graphic Converter. Uh, it does more than convert graphics, but if, if you want a program that knows how to read a type of graphic, this to me is the best program to do that sort of thing. And for diagnosing uh, uh, Wi-Fi problems, I like iStumbler. Yeah. Yeah, sure, One of man. Our favorites. All right. So and let's... then um, two other, uh, and just a general category, and I'll mention the ones that I use, but um, uh, cloud services. The ones that I like are Google Drive, or the ones that I use are Google Drive, OneDrive, and Dropbox. Oh, you, you meant we already mentioned Dropbox. Ah, all right. Yeah. But uh, a one or more cloud services is something yeah. I think everybody should have. And then a photo service, uh, my favorite right now, is Flickr. So. But there's no app for Flickr unless you are a paid Flickr member now on your Mac, right? Uh, the Flickr uh, uploader only works if you are a Flickr Pro or whatever, the, 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 the non-free version. That, that well, changed have, about six months ago. Well, you can, there's you can there's an app on iOS. And yes. 
That's correct. The iOS app will still run for free users, but the Mac uploader will not. Yeah, I don't use the. Uh, yeah, I'll typically uh, just do a one-off upload. Uh, typically from. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to keep the the blinders on us here, yeah. so that we're on Mac apps for people to install. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it, going back through this, um, interesting. How many people are using? Not just alternative browsers, but multiple browsers. We had a lot of you suggesting both Firefox and Chrome, which I thought was interesting. And many of you were that did were web designers who uh, need to test things in multiple browser environments. One of you, though, was not a web designer, and uh, at least one. And, and when I queried about it, said, yeah, well, I just have some websites that don't work in Safari, but do work in either Chrome or Firefox. And so, uh, so that's the reason for using those, which I found interesting. Uh, iTerm 2, I tried using iTerm 2 for a little while as a uh, replacement for Terminal. And then when we listed through and posted it in our Facebook group at uh, MacGeekUp.com slash Facebook, there's a bunch of Terminal like keyboard shortcuts and tips and tricks that you can do that are very Mac OS integrated. And so I quickly went back to Terminal and it's been great. So... Um, so I thought, I thought that was interesting. Um, bartender is one that would certainly be on my list. If you are a laptop user or even a, a, a user, I mean, I, at my desk, I've got, you know, 27 inch monitors. So having all these menu bar widgets floating up there doesn't really bother me because I have the room for it. But on a laptop, you may not have room for all of them to display. And so they simply won't display, uh, the menus take over. And you might not even notice it, but Bartender cleans that up and gives you a sort of drop-down menu. And you can configure how you want it to appear. So if you've got a menu bar widget that, like like Dropbox's widget, for example, that spins uh, when it's syncing or gives you an error, you can actually have it up, float up to the main menu bar so that you'll see it there when it's changing. And then it drops back down when it goes idle. So Bartender's a really, really good one, in, uh, in my opinion. Transmit for FTP is is stellar. Evernote, we had many of you mentioned both Evernote and Microsoft's OneNote, almost an equal split between those. Uh, and of course, we weren't asking about Apple apps, uh, but uh, but interesting to see how many of you are using a third-party Notes app. I, I'm John and I are Evernote users here. In fact, it's Evernote from which I'm reading all this stuff. So uh, very interesting that that those came up. Uh, as you said, password managers, John, a good thing. Um, cloud services. The one I didn't mention was cloud station. I used to use BitTorrent sync, which then become, became Resilio sync and, and it still works fine. There was about a, a, a two month period where it was doing a weird thing and wouldn't sync some of my files because they had, I don't know, a quote or an equal sign or something in them or an asterisk in them. That's what it was. And you know, I'm syncing 20 gigs worth of files. I wasn't going to go in and change the names of the ones that had asterisks. So I just switched over to CloudStation again, which is Synology's uh, own cloud syncing service. And man, it's been working great. I am really impressed with it. The user interface is good. It lets me uh, have multiple versions and I can manage them very, very easily. It's, it's actually a much simpler thing to manage than Resilio Sync. And it still lets me do, you know, private cloud. So I really like that one. Kind of going through the list. Keyboard Maestro, we couldn't record Mac Geek Ab without it. Certainly our chapters and all of that stuff uh, are happening that way. And yes, uh, Katie Floyd, I got your email. Uh, I have not replied. She's curious how I do the chapters here in the show with Keyboard Maestro. 
I'm going to put together an article that has all of that stuff and hopefully do that this week. So uh, Keyboard Maestro is awesome. It also manages multiple clipboards, which is if you aren't using a clipboard manager, uh, Frank or anyone, obviously this kind of spills beyond just Frank's desires. But if you're not using a clipboard manager, your life is uh, about to be more complete because having a history of the things that were on your clipboard and being able to put multiple things on your clipboard and then paste those out as you wish is awesome. Imagine being on a web page and copying not just the title, not just the URL, but you know some snippet of text from it and then jumping over to an email and pasting all of these, those things in without having to go back and forth between the two apps. I can't make an argument enough for this when I don't have a clipboard manager on my Mac. I feel like I'm running with, with mittens on. So uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that came up that we have not talked about. So, and I don't think there are, there is So, Yeah. And there's lots of clipboard managers uh, in the chat room. John is suggesting copy paste pro. There's, there's many of them. In fact, keyboard maestro as a clipboard manager is probably overkill only because it does so many, many other things but you may want to do those other things. And so then it's nice to have them all consolidated into one really easy to use app. But, but yeah, there's, there's tons of them. Just get something where the keyboard shortcuts that do it work for you. Like for me, obviously command C is copy command V is paste command shift C is, or command shift V is what I've set. I think I can't even remember my hands just know it, but I've got to, you know, I just, modify that a little bit and it pops up the menu and then I can use my arrow keys to pick which item from my clipboard history I want to paste in and it goes very very cool stuff Frank thank you for asking that question man this is cool do you have anything to add John before we uh, before we move on to some quick tips here no are you sure okay yeah okay. I, every, everything I had on my list I uh, I got out of my system okay all right I don't know why your connection keeps going like into Skype land today, but um, hopefully, hopefully we can dig you out. Ooh, of yeah, I'm down to 12k. Yeah, I know. And now, now it's bouncing it's, up to. So maybe I got to talk more. I don't know. Yeah, grease the uh, grease the skids, the tubes here, or something. Now you now you sound smooth and buttery. Yeah, now it's up to 24. Yeah, yeah, but I I, I see it on the the technical call info screen that my bit rate is yeah degrading. It's degrading. Yeah. You know. Yes. Very interesting. All right. Uh, moving to Paul, we've got uh, three or four quick tips. Paul's going to start us off here, I believe. And Paul, oh, yeah, he, he sent us, uh, and we, we actually posted his screenshot because it was really cool. He went to update to 10.1.1 on his iPhone, but it's a 16 gig iPhone. And so, you know, those are small. And anybody that's ever tried to upgrade a 16 gig iPhone or really any iPhone that's full uh, will sometimes say, hey, you can't do the over-the-air update, uh, uh, software update, because there's not enough room on your iPhone. Well, this time, Paul sent in a screenshot that says it's got a little dialogue as he goes to update. It says, temporarily remove apps to install software update. And it says, Excel will be temporarily removed to make storage available for this software update. It will be reinstalled when the update is complete which I thought was pretty darn cool. Uh, so we, we put a little note up, uh, cool stuff found note up at, at TMO, but what a great little tip to know that you can, even if, if you had gotten out of the habit of doing over-the-air software updates, um, you can do it now, which is good. 
something. Yeah, to, something there, Paul. <clears throat> I did something. So, so I was going through my iPhone and yeah. I was uh, just looking at all my different apps, and and I still have. Um, Parking to the bad old days when you couldn't delete apps. Um, I have a folder called Apple Apps. Sure. I still have a folder called Apple Apps. But I was going through the other day and I was looking and I'm like, you know what? Let me see if I can delete this one now. And that's something they promised in 10. Yeah. And, and the one that I got rid of because I don't have an Apple Watch was Watch. Mm. So here's I deleted the thing, it though. And it said, and it gave some sort of message saying, okay, I'll let you delete this, but um, you won't be able to sync to an Apple Watch. And I'm like, well, right. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. Right. <laughs> but right. it allows yeah, you now, the yeah. but you have the ability to delete more apps than you have in the past. The thing is, I with most of those, and I'm not sure about the watch app, but I know that with most of those Apple apps, deleting them simply removes them from your home screen, but doesn't actually free up the space that they would have taken up. Uh, and, 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 and I, I'm not certain that that's true for all of them, but I know that for some like mail, I think you can remove, but I don't think it actually gets rid of mail because so many things use all those frameworks that, that mail relies on that, that it just hides it from the home screen. That's all. Huh. So, okay. Yeah. Well, that was my intent. Uh, sure. Well, ideally I'd like to free up the space, but <laughs> the thing is I don't want it taking up valuable right. screen real estate. Right. So I right. got rid of it. Yep. All right. Uh, Josh has a great little tip for us. He says, you know how you can two finger scroll on an Apple trackpad? Try doing it with your first two fingers. Now your second and third fingers. Now your third and fourth. Now your first and fourth. It doesn't matter which fingers you use. It always scrolls. Except try it with your thumb and any finger. If you just tried it, you know. Nothing happens. Your trackpad, according to Josh here, he says, uh, can seem to tell if your thumb is touching. I assume it detects the angle of each finger. And if they match, it scrolls. If not, it prepares for a pinch zoom rotate. Try that on any other brand trackpad. And I bet Apple's the only one that does it. And he's right. I, I tried this. Now, he's also right about it detecting the angle of your finger, because if I like contorted my hand and flattened out my thumb as opposed to using kind of the side of it, which would be the more natural way to do it, it worked. So it really is looking, you know, for the angle or the, the amount of of surface that it takes up. I don't know, but they are somehow detecting it, which is very interesting. So thanks for sharing that, Josh. Fun, fun, uh, fun stuff. Michael, does this work? You have a laptop right in front of you, but it's an older laptop, like a 2012. Is that the case on that too, John? Did you just try it? What I try, yeah, what happens is it just moves. So if I use my thumb and a finger, it just moves the cursor. It just, yeah, it's as though it's, it's, it's right. It's not doing scroll. Okay. So it's been doing this for a while. Very interesting. Um, Michael says, uh, I had many, many songs on iTunes that I wasn't interested in hearing anymore. So rather than deleting all of those, I created a new library by just adding the songs I wanted. When I indexed the songs to my Sonos, I noticed that the playlists were all missing. Then I saw that the iTunes library.xml file was no longer in the iTunes folder. I'd never given this file any thought. I always thought it was just created automatically. So I spent some time trying to figure out how to build it when I noticed in iTunes preferences in the advanced section... There is an option to share iTunes library XML with other applications, and it was unchecked in my new library by default. 
I checked it. And of course the XML file appeared and then everything could read it. And this is true. Yeah. That iTunes XML file, it used to be created by default. And then at some point, and I'm going to say it was, you know, four or five years ago, they, uh, they changed that default and it doesn't create it, but you can turn it back on in case you have some third party app. And there's lots of third party apps that rely on it. Uh, his Sonos was just an example, but yeah, very, very interesting. So thanks for the reminder on that, Michael. That's one of those things that could send any one of us into a wild goose chase or a needle in the haystack hunt. So thanks for avoiding. Thanks for going through the haystack and telling us where to find it. And then Mike has uh, has an in- well. He sent it in as a question, and then he immediately answered it. He he said sometimes somehow I maximized my iTunes window and I can't get it back to normal size. There's nothing on the top of the screen except back pause and forward. I thought I read somewhere. If I right click on the top, it will bring back the screen where I can kill the max screen, but I can't do that either. And he says, and the answer is go to system preferences, go to dock and uncheck the double click a windows title bar to box. There will be many options in that box. One of them is to maximize the screen. But uh, you can zoom it or minimize and all that. So that's the trick is you had double clicked the title bar. And uh, if you're not using that feature, it may be worth turning it off in system preferences so that you don't wind up using that feature unintentionally. So, John, you had a quick little tip, too, for uh, for all of our friends here using Synology disk stations. Yes. So I recently went to uh, so they had a Synology conference in. uh in Manhattan and uh, it's a get together where they're partners and people that they like, like us because we like them. And so I managed to, or I was uh, invited to come and check it out and got to meet uh, all sorts of people that work there. It's great stuff, but they also have a raffle and dude, I won. <laughs> I hardly ever win anything, <laughs> but I won a uh, Synology DS two one six J which is one of their lower-end units. Yep. Uh, I also learned the secret of how they, they name their models. I never knew this, and that the 216, the first number is the number of bays, and the next two numbers is the year it was released. So this is a two-bay unit that was released in 2016. That's right. And I also have, uh, thank you to my, uh, also met a, or at the show with Seagate, because you can put Seagate drives in here, and so I have two of their uh, Iron Wolf 8-terabyte drives in here. And the setup was really easy this time around compared to when I set up my other one, Dave. Yeah, Dis- Disk Station Manager 6 in- increased the ease of setup on Synology stuff immensely. Uh, really makes it easier for... It still has all of the depth of everything that, that exists in Synology, but uh, but makes that kind of first pass setup much easier. But but get to the get to the meat of this, John. Uh, frankly, we don't this, care that you got a free Synology. Let, let's tell it. I mean, it's great, but, you know, there, there's a tip here. Yeah. The tip is, and I was wondering, what can I use this for? And you had suggested, Dave, well, you know, one thing you could do, because you got enough space on there, it's an eight terabyte, and my other unit is less than that, why don't you back up one Synology to another? And that's something you can do with their software called Hyper Backup, one of the options. In addition to letting you back up things to the cloud and all sorts of different places, you can back up one of your Synologies to another one. I was like, huh, that's a good idea. So, you know, set it up, give it the IP address. uh, uh, And and I had to install something called uh, Hyper Backup Vault, 
Right. Yeah. You see, you, you install hyper backup vault on the, on the destination and hyper backup on the, uh, on the, on the source. That's right. Right. And then I set it up and it's like, well, what do you want to back up? Which directories? And I'm like, uh, let me back them all up. And I would schedule it. And so the first backup of course takes a real long time. I think there's, um, yeah, there's quite a bit of data that I backed up. Uh, and then Dave, um, we may have mentioned how, how we just love time machine and how super reliable it is, especially over Wi-Fi. Okay. So here, just so you know, folks here, the tip is, is imminent. I swear to you, Mr. Braun is going to get there. So here we go for the, for a quick, I just want to comment for is freaking ever. The thing is I've had a problem where every now it's going, sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, but I'll get the message from time machine saying, Oh, sorry, your backup is corrupt. Um, you're going to have to rebuild it and it locks you out and it won't back up anymore. And this just happened a couple of days ago after I started using hyper backup. I'm like, what can I do? I don't want to rebuild it again. I'm like, why don't I restore the last known good time machine backup, which is stored in one of the folders that I backed up with hyper backup. I did that and did the backup again and everything was fine. So, so even though it was a disk image, uh, or a sparse bundle or whatever it is that uh, the time machine stores by restoring that sparse bundle to your main Synology via hyper backup, you were able to preserve. So by having a backup of your backup, you didn't have to recreate and start your time machine backup from scratch. Frankly, if you're doing time machine backups over Wi-Fi, I would highly recommend doing something like this. You don't have to use the Synology thing. Uh, I mean, if, if you have it, then obviously that's an easy way to go. But no matter what you're doing, if you can make clones of your backups, they that might just save you. Uh, if if you're someone that really cares about the history and preserving the history of your time machine backup, that you can that you can do it. Yeah. So and it was interesting because the way because the way it appears. Um, so if you look at the, the the file on a Mac, it'll look it'll just be a sparse bundle. But on the Synology, it actually is a folder. And within that are other folders. So one is the bands that are part of the backup. And then there's all these uh, support files. Um, yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure if it was going to work because, you know, the, the Synology doesn't really know that it's a sparse bundle. It just knows it's a bunch of folders and files. But yeah. Work great. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that was not quite a quick tip, but, you know, there we go. Thank you, John. Uh, <laughs> moving on to Jurgen. I think that was a five minute quick tip. So. Uh, Jurgen writes, he says, I heard you guys mention clam XAV and actually he's not, uh, uh, he doesn't have superpowers. We've mentioned it in the past, uh, as an antivirus software of your choice. He says, well, at least I remember John mentioning it several times since I don't want to get caught. I've been using it for several months now, feeling safe and comfortable. Just today, I read an article in a German Mac computer magazine. They tested AV antivirus software with 56 current viruses and 194 potentially unwanted applications. Now here comes the bad news. They excluded Clam XAV from the test because it did not recognize over 80% of the viruses and PUAs that were on their list. By the way, the winner of the test was also a piece of free software called uh, Antivirus from AVG. I will download and install this software right after finishing this email to you. So thanks, Jurgen. Uh, very, very good stuff. And yeah, you know, AVG is, um, is, is very well known on the PC side for providing their, their free antivirus software. So if you are someone who chooses 
to use antivirus software on your Mac. I am not yet one of those people, but, uh, but if you are someone who chooses to, uh, it seems like AVG, at least according to this one German magazine is the way to go. And clam AV might be something that's better put on the shelf for a while, hmm. at least until they get back around with it. So thanks Jer Jürgen. Sorry. Uh, very, very good stuff. Very good stuff. AVG antivirus for Mac. And now it's in the show notes. All right. Uh, and then Doug has a little tip for us. Doug writes, where are you, Doug? How come I can't find you? He says, uh, it's sort of a tip and a question. He says, I'm wondering if a one or two foot piece of fiber optic cable hooked into a cable modem circuit would be enough of an isolator to protect against lightning strikes. I realize this would add cost if it worked, but is there a technical reason this wouldn't work? I'm no engineer. And I imagine there would still be expensive hardware left vulnerable, but wouldn't this be viable as costs come down? And yeah, I mean, if, if you have fiber optic between any two devices, uh, then, then there, there will be no lightning uh, power you know, and, and, and no, no surge from a lightning strike will cross that fiber optic. That's sort of the way it works. It's, it's non-conductive in that way. And, and it's, it was the, sort of the, the advice I got years ago when we were talking about all the lightning problems I was having, because I have that direct buried cable and people were saying, well, you should do fiber. The problem with fiber is it's, it's expensive because you have to have a, what I'll call a fiber converter. I'm sure there's a much more technical name for it on both ends to go from either coax to fiber or ethernet to fiber. And then of course, fiber back to whatever it is you want to go back to. Um, so, and I don't know if you could do coax to fiber, but certainly you could do fiber on the other side of your ethernet. Um, you know, the other side of your cable modem where you have ethernet coming out to your network, that would, that's definitely doable. But, um, but it's a lot cheaper to get one of those things we mentioned, like the PNET 1GB, I think is what it is, from uh, from APC, the people that make UPSs. So any thoughts on this, John? I'm just thinking the only thing that I suppose could damage fiber is the heat from the lightning may render your fiber un unusable. Huh. As you point out, fiber, right? I mean, it's glass. Right. Well, if, if lightning were to hit the actual fiber, fiber, yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 But that's all I'm you just would speculating. Lose. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't conduct electricity. It, yeah. It won't conduct it back to your devices. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Be nice to get fiber here. Well, fiber that I can buy. Right. Right. Like I told you, I noticed there, there's a pole near me that has a fiber junction box, but it's a company that I think does commercial fiber and not, uh, not for, the little people. So, they might be able to do it for you someday, John. Uh, I mean, I, I I got my super zoom camera and I actually got the phone number of the, you know, so they list the name of the sure. company and the phone number. But every time I try to call, nobody answers the phone. Oh, that's uh, too bad. I don't think they're really equipped to deal again, to deal with consumers. They're more right. business. Right. Vibe. Right. They want well, to th it, there's a business opportunity for you. Become a, um, distributor a, a distributor for, for them. Yeah, yeah. Just to consumers. I mean, there's the right. It's already right there. All you'd need to do is I would call it the last mile, but it's not even the last mile. It's, you know, the last hundred feet. And, uh, and who knows? Maybe there's uh, maybe there's a business for you. I don't know. Just 
on the way I think of things. Um, Terry has a question, John. Terry asks, and he sends some screenshots to go with along, along with it, but he says, I've just lived with this for a while now, but it's a little crazy making. I have a mix of email accounts, one exchange for my campus email. I'm a professor and a couple of Gmail accounts in iOS mail. Swiping is crazy. Sometimes it's swipe left to delete and swipe right to archive. Other times it's just the opposite. As you might imagine, this email roulette can be frustrating and slows down processing in an infuriating way. How might I unify this? And he, he does. He sent some screenshots. Uh, and if you use an iPhone and you've ever done a swipe on like from the list of messages in any mailbox, but typically you do this from your inbox, you can swipe one direction and get like more and mark unread and either trash or archive. And then you can swipe the other direction and get either trash or archive. And it can be different depending on your mail account, because this decision is made per account and is set by going into settings on your iPhone settings, mail accounts. Then you choose the account. And then inside the account, you choose account again, which typically like has your email address and then go into advanced and then go into move discarded messages into you have an option here as to what you're going to do. Make this the same thing for all your accounts, because this is what happens. It's, it's really describing what that button at the bottom of a message will do either trash or archive. And whatever that button does is what I believe the uh, swipe left does. And then the opposite is swipe right. So you probably have some accounts that are set to trash and then some are set to archive. And that's why you're getting different behavior on each of those. So yeah, go into your, uh, go into your accounts and, and sort of homogenize this particular setting because you, you have an option, at least in my accounts, I have an option where it says move discarded messages into deleted mailbox or archive mailbox, make that the same for all of them. And then you should be in good shape. Interesting question. Thoughts on that, John? Yeah, that's a <clears throat> advanced is a good place to be. The uh, mm, looking at all the tough settings to here, get there. It was like when I went to write this for him, buried, like, dude, you buried. gotta like, yeah, there's like 16 taps to get there. Yeah. The one thing that I do notice, uh, just a, a tip for people, especially if you're running mail on both iOS and your Mac, is there's a remove parameter there. And uh, I think we've had people bring this up in the past. Make sure that it's set the same on all of your computers mm. or devices. Yeah. So, for example, here, I'm noticing that for this one account, it's remove after one week, um, which I think is reasonable for deleted messages. Um, but we've had people bring this up to us saying, hey, you know, the my messages are disappearing and I didn't delete them. It's like, well, have you checked all your machines? And typically one machine, it'll honor, you know, the one that has the shortest time frame. So here's my advice before you decide what to check any of those. I totally agree that they all should be set the same or all of them should be set to never. And one of them should be set to, you know, like maybe your Mac, your main Mac. Uh, should be set to, you know, delete after 30 days or, or a week or whatever you want. But having all of them sort of managing that can can get to be a little screwy. But before you even decide that, look at what your mail provider does. Because, for example, if you use Gmail, that is going to expunge messages from your trash can after 30 days 
regardless of what your clients tell it to do. So you might as well just set them all to never and let Gmail manage it. And that way it's only ever being managed from one place. So unless you want it expunged more frequently and then, and then follow the other advice. But yeah, they, I agree that they should all be homogenized or one, they should all be never. And one should be doing all the heavy lifting of that. That's, that's how I like to do it anyway. Anything else on that, John? No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm with you, man. It's a, uh continue shall we you know what i want to do john is i want to talk about our three sponsors can i do that absolutely all right our first sponsor today is eero and even if you've already heard me talk about eero please listen today because i have a deal coming up for you that they have shared with me eero is enterprise grade wi-fi in an easy to use package for your house let's think about it right five years ago even you didn't have a ton of Wi-Fi devices in your house. You had a couple and it wasn't really a make or break if they were out of range. Compare that to an office, though, even a small office, you might have had, you know, 20 or 30 Wi-Fi devices. Nowadays, you might have that at your home and your home deserves the same type of connection and connectivity that an office would have but in an easy to use package. And that's what Eero does. This is a distributed wireless mesh translation bathes your home in Wi-Fi. You put one Eero unit by your cable modem, and then you put others elsewhere in your house and it figures out the mesh for you. This is not range extenders, folks. This is true wireless mesh. Here's the deal I have for you. Come Black Friday, there is an awesome price break that is available for you for Eero. And they don't just limit you to buying a three-pack anymore. Some homes will need a three-pack. Some homes will do just fine with two. So here's the deal. Normally, a three-pack is $4.99. On Black Friday and for that whole weekend, $3.99. Normally, a two-pack is $3.49 for that Black Friday weekend. $2.99. So you're saving a hundred bucks on a three pack and 50 bucks on a two pack. And if you just want one, maybe to add to a system, or if you feel like your house is small enough that just one, you can now get an Eero. Normally $1.99, you can get it for $149, saving 50 bucks there. So this is from November 24th to 28th. Uh, go to Eero.com. It's available other places, but uh, if you go to Eero.com and buy it and use the coupon code MGG, you get free overnight shipping. So go check this out. Eero.com, coupon code MGG for your free overnight shipping. And I know it's crazy for me to say this, but wait until the weekend uh, of Black Friday, November 24th to November 28th. Go to Eero.com, buy it then, use your coupon code. You're going to save somewhere between 50 and 100 bucks on this awesome wireless mesh system. You're going to love it. Our thanks to Eero for sponsoring this episode. Our next sponsor is Videoblocks at videoblocks.com slash MGG. Yes, that's right. We've got a new URL for you now. Last week, I told you about Videoblocks. This week, I actually got a chance to use it. Videoblocks is this awesome site that has stock video footage. And I know that doesn't sound exciting to everyone, but man, the way this site works is awesome. You just go and you get this page and you start searching, right? It, you can, you can just use some of their categories or you can search for stuff and it just surfaces all these video clips that match what you're looking for. 
and you can preview them all right in this one web page. It's really, it takes a lot to impress me on the web these days in terms of functionality. Video blocks totally blew me away. And then of course you can, if you see one you like, you can dig in and, uh, and then if you want it, you sign up for a video block subscription, right? And if you go to videoblocks.com slash MGG, you get a subscription for 149 bucks for an entire year. That's a hundred bucks off their normal price. If you're doing any kind of video editing or video production, that 149 bucks for a royalty free video is amazing. So you got to check this out. Go to videoblocks.com slash MGG, sign up and you get a year. Here's the other thing. You get access for that same year to their sister site, Audioblocks, that does the same thing. But for audio, next week, we'll tell you a little bit more about the details of that. Simple, unrestricted licensing on both video blocks and audio blocks. It's 100% royalty free, even after your subscription has come to an end. So anything you get during that subscription, you have access to and you can use ongoing. Check it out. Videoblocks.com slash MGG. You get a year at that URL for just 149 bucks. Our thanks to Videoblocks for sponsoring this episode. Our third sponsor for today is Harry's at harrys.com. Harry's makes some of the best razors I've ever used at a shockingly low price. It, these are, it, 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 it's amazing how fantastic these razors are all by themselves. And then when you Look at the price. You'll you'll shake your head and wonder, why have I been overpaying for razors all my life? Those other companies have huge must have huge margins. I don't understand it because what Harry's can deliver me for, I mean, just a few bucks is amazing. These razors. I've never experienced a shave as close as I get with Harry's. And I've been doing this for, you know, whatever. Let's say many, many decades. It's really quite something. and. The blades, when you buy replacements, are just about two bucks a blade. These things last forever, too. I don't know if Harry's wants me to even say that, but they totally do. Like, I use them probably twice as long as I would use any other blade, and, uh, and they just hold up. So, here's the thing, though. Even if you have been a Harry's customer in the past, as long as you haven't taken advantage of their free trial, you get to take advantage of it now, even if you're already a Harry's customer. So, so what you do is you go to harrys.com. And you click the start trial button right there. Uh, what that's going to get you is a handle with a blade, foaming shave gel, and a razor cover. They're also going to ask you to sign up for a plan to get more blades down the road. But here's the thing. First of all, the free trial set is free. You're just going to pay three bucks shipping. And you don't have to continue through with your shave plan if you don't want I can't imagine you're not going to want to, and neither can they. That's why they're willing to do this. You got to check this out. Go to harrys.com, sign up for your trial, and uh, when you're checking out, use coupon code MGG. That gets you a free tube of post-shave balm included in your order. So check it out. Harrys.com, sign up for your free trial. You're going to pay three bucks in shipping. Use the coupon code MGG. And you'll get a tube of post-shave balm included in your order because you're a friend of ours. Our thanks to Harry's for sponsoring this episode. All right, John. We do need to talk about Thunderbolt and USB-C again. Uh, 
Why? Because it's the world we live in. Thunderbolt in general. We'll live in. Yeah, well. We get the latest Mac. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Listener David writes, he says, I've ordered the new MacBook Pro. I have several Thunderbolt 1 and Thunderbolt 2 accessories. I was looking for a USB-C hub with USB 3 and a Thunderbolt port and have not found one. I've seen a few with DisplayPort, but I'm not sure if that DisplayPort, mini DisplayPort is what that would be, means that it can also be used as a Thunderbolt 1 and 2 port. Can you recommend the best approach for connecting Thunderbolt devices to the new MacBook Pro? Yeah, this is, pardon me, this is definitely going to be a point of confusion because, uh, as we said recently, Thunderbolt doesn't really have a port. Thunderbolt 1 and 2 have been carried traditionally across mini display port, uh, but not every mini display port. But when there is a Thunderbolt capable mini display port, that's how you get Thunderbolt one and two across it. And of course, Thunderbolt three is going across a Thunderbolt capable USB C port. I had to get that right. Uh, so the question is, how do you know? Uh, you've got to just look at the specs on, on each adapter. Uh, and, and, you know, adapter is even the wrong term, but it's as good as we're going to get. So you can call it dongle if you want. Right. But that's what you're going to need to look at is what devices out there have Thunderbolt one and two capable mini display ports that will plug into your USB-C on your new MacBook Pro. It gets crazy because those same devices won't do anything for you on the MacBook that also has a USB-C shaped connector, albeit with different capabilities. So it's fun, isn't it, John? No, 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 it's very, not if it's confusing. Yeah, I agree. I'm almost certain that if, and when I do get one of the latest machines that has the USB-C slash Thunderbolt three. Yeah. And I'm going to have to get a dock. Oh, uh, yeah, the dock is the way to go. Uh, and I but, think our pals at OWC make a uh, a fine uh, option. Yeah. D- checked. Are they, is there USB-C dock? Um, I don't know if, they, have they announced one? I forget. Because they've got a USB-C dock, but at least the one that I'm seeing here does not have any thunderbolt on it right it's just got five usb 3.1 gen 1 ports gigabit ethernet an sd card reader uh hdmi yeah, i'm audio. seeing the same thing yeah mentioning so yeah i guess but, they're working on it. but yeah i mean this is but this is the thing right like that is certainly one of the best thunderbolt uh, sorry one of the best usb c docks on the market but because it hasn't been geared for uh anything that was thunderbolt capable it just doesn't have that yet but i yeah in in the chat room mac vader is saying he thinks they've announced it and i think he's right um usbc thunderbolt doc chat room what's the chat you see at macgeekab.com slash stream john of course of course yes yes yeah i I i feel like you're right um, off the top of my head, I can't find it, but, uh, but yeah, this is the thing is you've just got to be really, really, uh, thoughtful 
and and don't try to look it up and make a purchasing decision while you're recording a podcast for tens of thousands of people. Uh, much better to to just go and look. And and you you've got to ask these vendors because it, this is all very very new. Chances are today there's very little on the market that's going to be a one stop shop for what it is that you want to do. But um, but there you go. There is. And thankfully, we have many listeners in the chat room. So we do have a link now that we can put in the show notes for the uh, what's what they're calling the OWC Thunderbolt three dock. So this for two seventy nine will get you the SD card reader, audio in and out, five USB three point one Gen one ports, SP diff, FireWire eight hundred gigabit Ethernet, mini display port, but just for mini display port it doesn't look like that's going to do thunderbolt one or two and then dual thunderbolt three ports that are USB-C ports so even with this and we've got to ask but even with this you might have to get there there are single uh i've seen on amazon and they're from you know what i would have called at least the ones i found no name vendors but that have uh, USB-C to Thunderbolt three capable USB-C to Thunderbolt two capable mini display port adapters for exactly that. But maybe this OWC one will do it. It doesn't say that it will. And again, that's why we've got to ask. So it's pretty crazy, but yeah, search for Thunderbolt three to Thunderbolt two on Amazon. That would be the, uh, the thing to, to look for if you, if this thing won't do it and it, it's hard to say. So, that even this they're saying isn't going to ship until February 2017. So the question is, you know, um, what do you do until then? And I'm not sure that there's an answer. So I don't know. Are you going to get uh, no one of these? Oh, okay. I just I thought you know when you said that it shocked me. I I, I didn't think that this maybe to someday. You. I don't know. But for now, my 2012. Sure. 15 inch non retina is uh serves all my needs nicely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All righty. Um let's talk about this. Uh Denise asks. I think Denise asks. There it is. I'm getting there. I would like to share a couple of non copyright DVDs that contain old home movies. I've just had them copied from old video cassette tapes onto DVD at the Photoshop in town. I would like to now share them with my iTunes library and then share that part of my library with my mom so she can watch them on her iPad. I've asked this question on Apple discussions, which I always find very helpful. Uh, and they suggested using handbrake, but I'd like your opinion on this app and also your thoughts on any chance of doing this on my Mac, which is a uh, 5k retina late 2014 iMac running El Capitan without having to download any other apps. Well, uh, I don't think you're going to find a way to do this with El Capitan without downloading any other apps. I think you're going to need something non Apple to convert those DVDs and handbrake is a perfect way to rip the DVD into a format that's understandable by iTunes. And then you can share those resulting files with anyone. They will not have any copy protection on them. And to be quite frank, uh, if you take a copyrighted DVD and rip it with handbrake, the resulting file, you could, you could uh, from a technological standpoint, share with anyone because it 
will not have any uh, DRM or copy protection on it. Now, whether you should or legally are allowed to uh, be sharing those is a whole other thing. And, and you need to check on that or, or not. That's up to you. But if your DVDs start their lives as, you know, yours and you, you could share with anyone, then of course, uh, you know, with home movies and stuff, you're fine. So yeah, handbrake would, would be probably the best thing. It's certainly very, very simple. For the most part, it 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 has a user interface that has lots of options, but you can choose one of the presets and just go. I would choose the Apple TV three preset or Apple TV four now, sorry, uh, preset in Handbrake because that's going to get you a decent sized video that also uh, will be compatible with iTunes and anything else Apple that you try and throw at it. Uh, iTunes, but here's the thing: iTunes doesn't really make it easy to share these files unless you're plugging your mom's ipad into your computer uh, but you could use dropbox or something like we transfer or even a thumb drive to send them to your mom's computer if she has a computer and then she could sync them from your um from your your you know from from uh from her i you know if she if she has a computer sorry if she has a computer she can sync them from the computer to her ipad or you could plug her iPad into your computer. Um, or we could use the thing that we mentioned earlier in the show, and that's an app called Walter W a L T R from a company called soft Reno. And uh, this makes it pretty easy to take any videos uh, that you have and put them into your iOS videos app. It's pretty, pretty amazing the way it all works. Uh and it, it just, it's able to take anything. Although if, again, if you're creating them with handbrake in a way that uh, puts them in a format that iTunes can understand, then iTunes typically will transfer them to your, uh, to your iPad. But Walter, Walter's pretty cool the way that it, uh, the way that it does this. And it's a, it's a, they've just come out with a, uh, with a new version, but it, it just, it's a drag and drop thing. It's a really, really simple app. And it just puts the stuff out there and puts it in a format that your um, that your iPad's going to understand. It's pretty awesome, so highly recommend it, and and it's worth checking out. Yeah, it just it really it How really about, uh, yeah. You could you could email it. Ah, uh, you could. That's right. Because it would using use air mail or mail drop. drop. Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, I I'm like that. I was thinking in the back of my mind here, and I just looked. So, yeah, so MailDrop is Apple's technology that will, uh, it won't send it as an attachment. It actually uses, I guess, iCloud in the background to, uh, or puts it on a server somewhere, and then yeah. the recipient can download it. Uh, from what I see here, the limitation is that uh, it'll only handle files up to five gigs, but I think most DVDs. Uh, the size of that file is going to be less than five gigs. I'm almost certain. Right. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. Especially once it's converted and compressed with, with handbrake. Uh, th here's the problem with using mail drop to someone who's, who, you know, is going to read it on an iPad. I, I am almost certain that they will be able to get the mail drop file and view it, but they will have to view it inside their mail app. I don't believe iOS is going to provide any, any path to take it from the attachment from mail and put it into the videos app. And that's the really frustrating part. I mean, it, it, the same is true if you get an MP3, you know, and you want to add it to your music app on, on your Mac, it's easy. You just drag the MP3 from mail into iTunes and you're done. You cannot do that 
on an iOS device. And it's, that's very frustrating. So, so there you go. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Mail drop, uh, mail drop can do it. So in the chat room, we are hearing that uh, actually a great suggestion is an app called infuse um, from a company called Firecore, And, it will do very, very similar things. You can transfer into Infuse. This doesn't put them in the videos app uh, on uh, on iOS. It puts them into the Infuse app, but very, very good stuff and and works really, really well. And will play formats that uh, that otherwise are unplayable on the uh, on the on the iPad. So, sorry, getting all kinds of feedback from all of you, and it's fantastic, but it's throwing me off a little bit. So. Good stuff, though. Very, very good stuff. Any other thoughts on this, John? No, that's about it. I, uh, yeah, handbrake to MP4s is uh, is is what I do. Yeah, stream it with uh, stream it with Video Station. Right, and if you've got a Synology, yeah, that, and that would be the other way to do it is you could set up a uh, either a Synology server or even a Plex server if you don't have a Synology, uh, but you could set up a Plex server on your Mac and point plex at your itunes videos library and then uh i think your mom would need a plex pass account but uh to download them into plex on her computer but uh, or you would need one that you could add her to and uh and that would be another way to do it and then she can stream these from you and download them to her ipad and just watch inside the plex app which wouldn't uh, that would be that would be a, a, another good way to do it, especially if, if you're going to have lots of these things and you just want to be able to make them available for her without, um, without, you know, having to go and mess with it all the time, mm-hmm. set her up with Plex once or video station or DS video, if you've got a Synology and then populate the library for her and you're done. It's actually not yeah. a bad idea. Cause I know, uh, some, some files that you and I have exchanged as of late, uh, signature profiler, um, involved um come for your synology as far as i can tell you well, send yeah, me a link to the file that's starting your synology it's awesome. yeah it's because i well what's cool about that is uh i'm doing that with uh, i mentioned that i i use cloud station now right which is like private dropbox if you will uh, and it's built in and freely available to anyone using a synology device and so you set up the cloud station server on the synology and then there's a cloud station app on the mac that's what i was talking about before and uh and what's cool about it is anything that I have synced with cloud station, I can go into a folder on my Mac. I can see the file. And like you said, I was sending you a, a test version of a, a thing for SIG pro, which is a new app that, that, or it's a rebuild of an app that, that lets you manage your signatures on the Mac. And I was sending John this link to the beta that they had sent me and, and they told me it was cool to, to share with you. And, uh, and I, I just right click on the file in the finder and say, get shareable link. And not only does it provide me with a shareable link, but I can, if I wanted, I could make it so that you had to type a password to get the file. I can also set how long that shareable link is good for. So I set it for a week. And then that way, after a week, I don't have to worry that someone else, if they stumble onto this email a year from now or whatever, is going to be able to download it from me. Um, I can set a maximum number of times to download and then just puts the link on my clipboard and I send it to you. And it seems like from what you're telling me, it works, which is good, (laughs) but yeah, cloud station's really cool. Uh, it's the, the Mac app for it has come a long, long way. Um, it, 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 there was, there was a reason that I stopped using it. And, uh, and like I said, I came back to it 
but three or four months ago, and I've been totally blown away. So it's good stuff. It's fun. Nice. Yeah. Can we can we add signature uh, SigPro to our must have? Well, yes. Uh, depending depending on how your email is set up, right? If, if you if you have multiple uh, email addresses associated with an account, you almost need Signature Profiler. You'll go insane. Yeah, it's but it, but here's the thing: we have to stop calling it Signature Profiler because that's what it was called before Sig- Sierra. It's right. just SigPro. Yeah, but but other than that, yes, please let's add it to the list. It's um, and and you know I'm I'm surprised. Anytime we make these kinds of lists, there's always things that um, I forget about. And this is definitely uh, one of them. SigPro, I didn't include and couldn't live without it. And also uh, Mail Acton from the same company now, uh, uh, Scott and Scott, Scott Little and Scott Morrison merged their, their mail plugins together into a company called Small Cubed. And SigPro is, is from them, as is Mail Acton. And these, it, I couldn't live without it. Mail Acton lets me uh, apply rules with keystrokes. So if you think about archiving your mail or, or doing things like I, a lot of times you folks uh, sometimes will send me an email to my personal email address, which is for my, my direct email address, which is fine. But I want to answer it when I'm in Mac Geekab mode so that I can put it into the flow of the show. So I have a, I hit control G and what that does is a, it moves the message to my Mac Geekab folder and B, it marks it as unread. Otherwise I'll think I've dealt with it already and leaves it over there. And I do that with a mail rule, but the triggering it with command G. So this is mail rules for things that have already come in. Super, super handy. Um, yeah. That, 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 another tool I, I just can't live without. So it is good stuff. Any other thoughts, John, am I missing anything? We're always going to be missing something. I know. Well, it, it, as, as we're, as we're pointing out to ourselves, that's good. That's good. It's good. All righty. Where else are we here at while we're back now circling back to the subject of movies and ripping them? Uh, listener Craig has a question that always drives me crazy. He says, uh, I have seen many movies with short passages of, he says, you talked about forced subtitles, something I did not know about until you recently discussed it uh, when you were talking about ripping DVDs. And that was in, I think the two or three episodes ago, he says, I've seen many movies with short passages of foreign language, which put subtitles on the screen, but I'd noticed that when I ripped my DVDs, these did not appear uh, when watching that ripped copy of the movie, the movie chef comes to mind for this. Is there a guide about subtitles and how to handle them? I find lots of individual bits of information, but none as comprehensive in range as your brief discussion. I would love to find out more, especially how to best how best to actually include these four subtitles and or burn them into the movie when ripping by disc. So, yeah, um, it really depends on what you start with for your source. Uh, When I'm ripping movies these days and it's typically Blu-rays. Um, I rip, I don't rip straight with handbrake. I rip with something called make MKV and that makes uh, an MKV file and folder full of all the stuff that was on the DVD, including all the subtitles and all of that, um, that little magic. And then I do use handbrake, but I don't use it directly. Um, as easy as the user interface is, there are lots of options. Uh, Don Melton, 
who was, he's retired now. He worked for Apple and was the lead of the team that created WebKit and Safari. Uh, Don is obsessed about having his movie library ripped in such a way that it looks as good as anything he might download from, um, you know, from Apple or perhaps better. And so he really got obsessive as, as great programmers often do about building a script that automatically it takes a look at the movie. It makes some decisions about it and then it just rips it. So you really don't have to stop and think at all. Um, but you do have to use the command line in order to be able to use his scripts. And, uh, and, and there's instructions and I'll put them out there, but by using make MKV and it pulls all the subs and all of that stuff, uh, you can, you can then go ahead and, and rip a movie from MKV into uh, MP4 format with Don's scripts. And it does, it uses handbrake, but it uses the, the terminal version of it, but it's very simple. You just literally type transcode video space, and then the file name of the MKV movie file. And it takes care of the rest, including finding the subs as long as they're in the, the folder and named correctly, which make MKV will do. Um, and then I just take that folder and put it in, uh, you know, in accessible to whatever it is I'm going to stream. I'm going to use to stream to my Apple TV and Plex works just fine with it. Plex really it, it it's a multifaceted approach dealing with subtitles. Handbrake will let you, there is a, an option on the subtitles tab buried in there that says uh, burn forced subtitles. My experience doesn't, it doesn't always get it quite right, but for some reason with Don scripts and doing it from MKV, it does. Um, and I don't know why that is, but it seems to work for me. So, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an awful awful little uh, process to deal with subtitles because there there's many different formats of them and all of that. Any thoughts? Have you dealt with any of this, John? No. Okay. You, do you do, do you, do you transcode your, your videos to your um, like you, how, what do you do? Do you put Blu-rays on your, on your disc station? I no, because I don't have a Blu-ray. Uh, I only have a Blu-ray player. I don't have a Blu-ray uh, external Blu-ray drive. Right. So the answer is no. Though you know, I'm thinking they're cheap. I mean, like forty bucks, and you can have a USB Blu-ray drive that will yeah. let you rip these things. Yeah, but, I, yeah. I should pick one up. The other yeah. thing is, it could be a little hardware project. Is that I do have a Blu-ray player, and I'm sure there's if I take the thing apart. And I got it a long time. It's a Sylvania, which is actually made by somebody else. And I think I, my benchmark was as soon as they go below a hundred bucks, I'll buy one. And oh. as soon as it went below a hundred bucks, I yeah. bought a Blu-ray player. Sure. And there's a player that does, you know, not only Blu-rays, you know, to play back other media. It has an SD card slot. It's really nice. Yeah. But I'm almost sure if I pop that thing open, there would be some sort of interface on the circuit board there. So I could hack together an interface or just spend the coin on an external one because <laughs> they're inexpensive. Yeah. But at I this point I ripped, DVDs uh, on occasion if I get stuff from my library and I don't get around to uh, watching it and have to return it, I'll rip it and then watch it and then I'll delete it. Um, technically, that may be naughty, but uh, oh, it, that definitely sounds naughty. Yeah, no, come on, I'm, I'm virtually. It's just I'm just extending the borrowing time. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> well, there's another solution. Actually, I don't know if you ever use this. Uh, I haven't either. They got older movies. Uh, uh, there's something called Hoopla. Yeah. And uh, typically, I guess your library can sign up to them and they will allow you uh, to virtually rent older, uh, older titles. Uh, 
I haven't found any. I haven't used it yet. Um, so that's what I do. Yeah, again, it may be minorly naughty. Sorry. Yeah. Don't, don't tell. <laughs> we, won't, we, we won't judge you other than right now. How's that sound? Thank you. Sure. Okay. Uh, moving along. You want to take us to Dan, John? I'm going to take us to Dan. Dan had a good one. Had because problem solved. So Dan writes and says, so I have a weird problem I haven't been able to resolve yet, and I'm hoping someone can offer some suggestions. I have an iMac running Mac OS Sierra and a MacBook Air running Mac OS Sierra. The MacBook Air is fine. However, on the iMac and Safari, I can't seem to log out of Gmail without closing the window or closing Safari. I have attached screenshots to show the problem. Normally, you would click on the icon in the upper right when you are logged in and select logout. However, when I click on the logo, it just disappears. If I click in the area again, it shows back up. This occurs regardless if I click on the application grid or the notification icon. Each of these will disappear if I click on them and then reappear if I click again. I've rebooted, cleared the cache, and even removed the com.apple.safari.plist without any luck. This only affects Safari on the iMac. Chrome works fine. Huh. So that got me thinking. Be careful of that. Yeah. 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 Steam will, uh, uh, whatever. So some diagnosis has already been done here. It happens on Safari on one machine or not the other. So it must be not Safari. So it's not a Safari problem, but it's a way of extending the functionality of a browser problem was my suspicion. Uh, so you may ask yourself, how do I how do I extend the functionality of a browser? And there are two ways to do that. Um, and so this is what I offered. I said, you know, maybe it's a Safari extension. So the Safari browser, they have things called extensions that let you do extra good things with your browser. And you can see those by going to Safari preferences extensions. And there'll be a list of one or more, if you've installed any, extensions. Now, the nice thing is that this is a place where you can actually enable or disable them one by one. So that was my suggestion. Do this and uh, see if one of the extensions is either... Well, the other thing you can do is if you go into that section, you can see if maybe an extension needs an update. Sometimes there are bugs or uh, issues with new web technology and the extension writer has to update their extension. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you'll see that. And actually I think you can set it to automatically update extensions that you use, or you can do it manually. I think I do it manually just because I want control. So that could be one thing. Uh, the other thing, the other way to extend a browser's functionality, but this is like the old and busted technology and it's kind of on its way out, but it's worth mentioning because you may be using this and not knowing it is that uh, these are called internet plugins. And in Safari, you go to Safari, help, and say, installed plugins. And when you do that, you will see a list of whatever plugins are installed for Safari. And actually, there is a standard for this. So uh, as far as I know, the plugins will work across different browsers. They use this standard. I think it's called NSAPI or something, Netscape API. It's some standard, but, but it's, it's something that it's not the preferred way to extend functionality anymore. Sure. Anymore. So I, I offered that, and uh, the response was, 
Thanks. I was too close to the problem. It was the Safari extension click to flash. Oh, yeah, there you go. That that's it's worth taking a look in your uh, Safari extensions folder uh, to see what you've got there. Uh, and it's not a folder. I don't know why I said folder, but if you go to yeah, Safari preferences extensions and you can see what you've got, you can see if there's any need to update and you can turn things off here, which is really handy. Um, but it, you just said, you know, for, if for troubleshooting and for no other reason. Also, while you're here, though, I would highly recommend going to the security tab and where you have Internet plugins where it says allow plugins. You can go to plugin settings and this is somewhere where Safari really really shines because uh if you go to the adobe flash player yes i know we're all supposed to hate flash but there are some sites where it's something you really want to use the thing is click to flash doesn't hide the fact that you have flash from uh from sub websites right it or from any websites it in fact advertises it still advertises that you have flash it just doesn't let the flash run the problem with that is if you visit a website that has a very graceful fallback to something better like HTML5, if it sees some websites, not all, but if it sees that you have Flash, it will use that uh, anyway. But if it sees you don't have Flash, it will fall back to HTML5 and you won't have any problem whatsoever. So the ideal scenario would be to hide the fact that Flash, effect, effectively disable Flash for all of the websites that exist out there and then only enable it for those where you know you really want to use it. And sometimes you'll go to one of those and it'll just say, hey, if you have Flash disabled, it'll say you need to download Flash. Safari actually lets you have the best of both worlds. Here's how you do it. You go into Safari preferences, security, and then click on the uh, little box that says plug or button that says plug in settings dot dot dot. Click on Adobe Flash in here. At the bottom of the, the screen, it says when visiting other websites and you get to pick whether it asks it's off or it's on for this choose off. So now when you visit websites, your browser will not advertise the fact that you have the flash plugin. It, effectively, websites will interpret that as you don't have the flash plugin. And then what you can do is you can add websites to this list where you turn it on. So for me, for example, I know that when I visit ticketmaster.com, I want flash to be used because they've got a, a seat picker that is only available to people using flash. It won't even offer it to you if you don't have flash. So it falls back gracefully, but doesn't give me the functionality that I know exists. So, uh, so I go here and, and it's cool because you can set it for currently open websites. So I visit Ticketmaster in my example, and then I would come in here and change the dropdown only for Ticketmaster from off to on. I could also change it to ask if I really wanted to, you know, to have it essentially mimic that click to flash behavior where it says this website wants to use flash. Do you want us to to let it? But uh, but I already know that I want to let it. So I do that and you can be very, very granular about it. It's very, very cool. So fun stuff for sure. It is. And I'm glad you mentioned this because I had forgotten that Safari Opera offers a way to interface yep. with the plugin directory. Otherwise, you'd have to fish around in there. And typically, it's located in either home library, internet plugins, or slash library, slash plugins. 
And that's another way, but this is a much nicer way because it, it tells you a lot of things. Um, additional things about the plugin that you can't see from the file itself. Yep. Like this. And actually I'm looking now at my plugins and some of these are old and busted. And I yeah. Well, there's able to remove them. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking here. I got an e-music plugin. Oh my gosh. I haven't used e-music in ages. Are they still around? <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. You can get rid of Well, that's the other thing is, is talking about light here. Oh my God. Silver light yeah. is still used. Isn't it? Isn't doesn't no, Am- Microsoft. Amazon Prime Video uses Silverlight, I think. Oh, I don't use that. Sure, um, but but I'm just saying. I mean, it it's you know that that's still yeah. in use, but but there's good reason to update it. So yeah, the thing that I did, I actually removed Flash from my system. So at one point, I thought our own Jeff Gamet was a, a crazy person because he uh, said you should really remove that. And the thing sure. Is, at some point, I think most of us had decided that the security risks uh, in Flash are just too much, and. Uh, so I actually remove it, and if I need to run something with Flash, I'll use Chrome. Chrome sure. has Flash built in, so that's a, a strategy you may want to consider. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and that's that's another way to do it. I prefer to just stay in Safari, and this lets me, mm-hmm. you know, this lets me truly have the best of both worlds. Um, so. Uh, all right. We have, I think we have time for one more, and I would love to go quickly here on Bill and Bill asks, he said last night I upgraded to iOS 10.1 since then when opening admittedly older apps, I sometimes get a message that it may slow my iPad down if the developer doesn't update the app. Uh, and he showed us a screenshot where it says free cell HD may slow down your iPad. The developer of this app needs to update it to improve its compatibility. Do you know what in particular it is about these apps that's triggering this message so far. It only does this the first time the app is opened after the update. I don't get it on subsequent launches. Um, this is Apple's way of shaming developers that have left their apps unupdated for a while and are still using uh, their 32 bit compiled versions. Um, they're really trying to get people to update their apps and compile them for 64 bit. Um, it's really Apple's way of letting you know that the app hasn't been updated in a long time. Does it make it potentially less efficient? Yeah. Is it something that you're going to notice? Probably not, but it could be maybe the problem is, and a lot of these apps, it's not just as simple as Apple saying, Hey, recompile it for 64 bit. It's recompile it for 64 bit and adhere to all the new guidelines and restrictions that we have in place now for iOS 10 and some apps simply couldn't exist if uh, they had to adhere to those restrictions. So an app developer is left with the choice of leaving the old version out there, essentially being grandfathered into the store with that specific version that yes, has this 32 bit limitation or updating the app and and losing whatever functionality they would, they would have to lose um, because of Apple's restrictions. So it's kind of a weird thing with Apple's review department that for many apps puts the, them in this position, but for some apps it's because the app is, has been, you know uh, it's lost, right? The developer's not updating it anymore. It's end of life. And this is part of that process. They just haven't pulled it from the, uh, from the store yet, or you haven't pulled it from your device yet. So I, mm-hmm. thoughts on this john am i am, am i missing no anything? you're right uh all things 
So all current processor or the, the current processors on both the Mac and iOS are 64-bit processors. Right. Uh, the thing is, all things being equal, um, 64-bit code will run better than 32-bit code. So yeah, didn't that kind of what you said already. Hmm. Um, sometimes there's a reason that they're still on 32-bit. It could be that a library that they depend on maybe not uh, available for 64-bit. That has happened in the in in the past. Uh, sure. Um, though typically it also means yeah, it's, <laughs> the developer just has, hasn't been paying attention to it. And I noticed this too. I think on two apps on my uh, on my phone. So iOS 10 seems to have uh, reactivated that ability. And I had one or two apps that would come up and say this. Yeah. Yeah, like, right. It it happened before. during the betas. I remember seeing people report it and then it seems like 10.1 sort of resurfaces it. So, yep. Yeah. Cool. Um you may want to if you're curious and you want to make sure that your Mac is running at peak performance. You may want to go into Activity Monitor. Uh CPU is one place and it'll show you uh, if you activate it, you may have to right-click and say show kind. But if you show kind, Dave, it'll tell you what kind of app it is. And there are two types, 32-bit and 64-bit. Wait, what are you talking about with this right-click right thing? I'm in activity monitor. I'm in CPU. Uh, right-clicking doesn't do... Uh... Well, if you run... Cl- uh, the, oh, right what I'm cli- saying is right-click on, the, on, the, on the, the bar on the top. On the, on the header bar. Got it. Correct. Yeah. Kind may not be available. And actually, if you right click on that bar, that will show you all of the categories of information that can be showed in activity monitor. Sure. It looks like there's about 20 of them. You probably don't. I didn't, need... I didn't realize you could, you could right click there and do it. I always do it in uh, the view menu. I go to columns and then you can, you can, sell, it's the same list. You can select from there. Okay. But the yeah. kind column will show if an app is 32 bit or 64 bit. Yes, it will. You really should be running all 64-bit apps on, on a modern computer and modern operating system. Uh. But for example, I'm looking and I do have a few things here. So I have something called Echo Backup, which is an old piece of software that came with a Lexar drive that does backups. That's yeah. 32-bit. DD Assist, which is Drobo's uh, software, yep. is also 32-bit. So I guess they haven't gotten around to it. And despite Whether- all my, uh, my, my ravings about how great Synology's uh, CloudStation app is, it shows up yes. as a uh, 32-bit app here. It hasn't now, caused me any be. issues, but yeah. but yeah. Yeah, but it's uh it's not running at, at peak performance. Right. So uh, you probably hadn't noticed it. But um right. <laughs> something you may want to do and just go through your apps and just uh, if you huh. see a thirty two bit one, see if there is one that um is sixty four bit. Now yeah. again, like in the case of Drobo, it could be that I don't know, I I suspect in their case they just haven't gotten around to updating mm. DD assist ever. <laughs> Well, there's no, they, maybe they, they do no update reason. it regularly. Yeah, there might be like I'm noticing what's interesting is one of the apps that shows up is NiceCast, which is the one that we stream uh, to our IceCast re- re- relay. It's essentially the app that lets us stream the show live to you folks while we're while we're recording. And that's a 32 bit app. It's from Rogue Amoeba. But I'm also running Audio Hijack Pro. Sorry, Audio Hijack 3. Uh, I have to. And that is most certainly 64 bit. And that's also from Rogue Amoeba. And, and those guys keep on top of this stuff. Nicecast is updated regularly. So I'm curious, that, like there's a, there's a reason that they haven't updated Nicecast to, to, to 64 bit. And, um, and maybe they, you know, they've looked at it and said, no, this app, it's better if we leave it this way. In fact, I'm sure they've decided it's better if we leave it this way. I'm sure this is an, an intentional decision, not an oversight on their part. So. <laughs> of course, another one that I see here. 
which uh, we'll, we'll have, uh, do a finger wag to Apple. It's called DBFS Events D. I'm almost certain that's a part of the operating system. Well, it's yeah, it's being run by Root. Think, yeah, I think Apple is responsible for that. So come on, Apple, get yeah, with it, man. Go. That's right. Thanks, Apple. <laughs> All right. Update your own software. That's right. Take your hey, own advice. So next week, um, I believe next week, it's certainly at some point within the next two weeks, it'll either be next week or the week after, we are doing a deep dive on routers. And uh, and we'll really be kind of exploring the all the mesh routers that are out there. I've, I've had the chance to, to mess with a bunch of them. And... Uh, and so that that'll be something we're going to do either either this either for six thirty two or six thirty three. Uh, so if you have any questions or certainly any thoughts to share, uh, anything, just send them to us. Feedback at macgeekab.com, and we will include those in our thought process as we put together this next deep dive. Um, I don't know. I really prefer to send any sort of question to feedback at macgeekab.com. Right, I know, but honestly, John, let's be, I mean, let's be real about this. Feedback at MacGeekUp.com is better. Unless you support us directly in our premium subscriber, and then premium at MacGeekUp.com is absolutely the right way to get in touch with us because we will give your email a little bit of special attention uh, before we get to all the rest. Although we do try to get to all of them, as, uh, as we show every week. Not necessarily in the show, but we answer all of them. That's the goal, even if we don't include them in the show. You can call us, 224-888-GEEK, and leave us a voicemail or a text there. John Geek is? 4335. And our Facebook group continues to astound me. Again, I mentioned it earlier in the show. MacGeekUp.com slash Facebook. Come join us there. Great conversation. Great people. Great help. Just a great place to be. Yep. We're and we had a nice... Yeah, and I, just recently we had a nice little collaborative uh, programming effort, if you will. This yeah. was the question about how to mount drives, and so I posted what I promised, which was a quick and dirty way of mounting drives without being prompted for the password. And uh, some of the members of the group said, ah, there's a... Uh, not that what I did was wrong, but there was a better way to do it. Yeah. There was a better way to do something. And a few of our uh, programming-minded programming uh, members uh, offered some suggestions and tips on making it better. And it works. I got. I have. I honestly. I mean, I saw the conversation happen. I've been busy and, and haven't tested it. But now I'm excited because I want to go and grab that Apple script so that I don't have to to authenticate all the time. So yeah. Well, what I did was it, it was an Apple script that actually had terminal commands. But there's actually a way to do it directly. Sure. In, um, oh, in Apple nice. script. Okay. And cool. So someone offered cool. that suggestion as well. There's a number of ways to to solve the problem. Sweet. Well, thank you for doing that. Thanks for everybody that participated in that. And really, it's a the group's a great place to be. I want to also thank Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get from us to you. Of course, our sponsors, uh, Eero at Eero.com, where coupon code MGG gets you free overnight shipping, and they got those deals. Uh, Videoblocks at Videoblocks.com slash MGG, where you can get a year's subscription for just 149 bucks, And of course, Harry's at Harry's.com, where coupon code MGG gets you a free post-shave balm added to your order of your free trial. Additionally, Gazelle at Gazelle.com, FatCat Software at FatCatSoftware.com slash MGG, Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash Geek. Otherworld Computing, absolutely, at MaxSales.com, Barebones Software at Barebones.com, and Casper at Casper.com slash MGG. 
Thank you so much, folks. This was, as always, a great episode. And thanks to you for asking some great questions and providing some great information. Thanks to everybody in the chat room. John, thank you. In fact, do you have anything, one last bit of advice to share with us all? I think I do. And it actually happened during this episode. I was supposed to give a quick tip and it turned into my waxing poetic for several minutes. So unfortunately, Dave, this time I got caught. Made up.